and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. In our conversation series, we delve a little deeper to hear directly from artists, and for this episode, I spoke with Patricia Piccinini. Patricia is one of Australia's leading contemporary artists, known for her hybrid creatures that shift between the beautiful and the grotesque. Her work looks at how we understand nature, what it means to change nature, and questions of maternity and nurturing. I'd like to start at the beginning and how you were born in Sierra Leone and moved to Italy and then migrated to Australia when you were seven years old. And I wonder if you think this experience at such a young age might have impacted your practice, especially thinking about how you now create these characters who appear on the one hand as similar to humans, but also from another world. I think being a migrant has had a big impact on how I position myself as an artist and also how I relate to difference because I did feel different when we first came here. Coming here, not having family, I felt um, very on the outside of things. And so my, my drive was to be, to be part of the group, it, uh, to be accepted because I didn't feel accepted. I, and perhaps in some ways I wasn't because I was a wog. Um, so as an artist, um, I, I don't like to see myself as outside of culture. I like to think that I'm in amongst every, everybody um, and trying to communicate to others um, about ideas that are important to us. When I consider difference and the space for difference in our lives, I think I've got a very open-hearted approach to it. I feel that I know what it's like to to feel different and I would, in my work, I'd, I'd like to think that it, it encourages us to consider the space for difference in our lives and, and what it means to us. And so when it comes to things like technology, which I think can be quite normalising, it can, I think, I think medical innovation can bring a lot of good to our lives and that's obvious and I'm waiting for that. But I'm also aware that it'd be can be quite normalising and it can, it can cure away um, <laughs> aspects of, of who we are that perhaps aren't pathological, they're just different. And, and that worries me. When people write or talk about your work, sometimes they link your personal life and maybe how you came to Australia as a migrant and they link that with these creatures you create. But I noticed that you've said a few times that your art isn't a form of therapy and you don't see your personal life as interacting quite so intimately as other artists do with their art. When I make an artwork, I don't make an artwork about my own personal experience. You know, Patricia who came here with an uh, Italian father and an Irish mother and felt alienated. It was not about Patricia, but I think it's about the sorts of uh, concerns that arise when you're that kind of person. So I, I, don't, I don't expect people to be interested in me personally, but I, I imagine that others might be interested in the migrant experience. The human hybrid creatures you're so well known for making now, do you remember the first one you ever made? In the third year of this exhibition project, which was called the Basement Gallery in Collins Street, I made this work called Lump, Life Form with Unevolved Mutant Properties. And it was a response to a kind of 
big, huge worldwide scientific investigation of the human genome. And so scientists were cataloging the human genome for the first time um, with a view to be able to use this material to, to change it. To, to, to develop gene therapy. And I thought this was fantastic. And it actually is fantastic. And now it's developed into things like CRISPR and so on, which is amazing. And also, I'm asking the questions with this technology, how are we going to use it? And at the time, I was talking about, well, who's going to have access to it? And will it be something that we can use to d- design life? design our children what they will be like. And if, if, if this is the case, this is my proposition, this is the child that I would like. And it, and it was a monster, but it was my monster, my perfect child. So it was a kind of proposition, like, can this come out of this technology or this way of understanding the body? Interestingly, uh, we now know that CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology that's just been developed in the last few years, we, it, it, that will be part of birth in the next decade. We will, we will be using that technology to intervene with our children's DNA makeup. I'm not saying that's bad. I think actually it's quite good. But in some ways I'd like to reflect this change in how we understand the body, this idea that it's so easily um, edited that it's so universal that, you know, that we can splice things together all over the place, that the body's not finite. Uh, we can change it in any way we like. It's, it's protein. And, and that, you know, that's, we're living through uh, a time where, where that's happening. I do have a few more questions I'd like to ask you about that, but I just wanted to backtrack to the basics and just talk about the process of actually making these creatures. Yeah. We're in your studio in Melbourne right now, and it's quite quiet at the moment, but I imagine a couple of months ago when you were preparing for your show at Goma, it would have been quite manic. It was, yeah. So then how do you come up with an initial concept or drawing and how does the process work from there? So I spent a lot of time in this room just reading stuff and what kinds of things are you reading? I read a lot of a lot of nonfiction, I guess, a lot of stuff for, around uh, innovation in science. I'm interested in it. And so science journals and things, you really try to keep up to date? Stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I, I don't even want to be, but yeah, I'm interested in that world. In I mean, look. I am a visual artist. I, I don't. I'm sort of don't see myself as an, a kind of an apologist for some concept, you know, for some scientific innovation. And also, I don't try and make cautionary tales, like present dystopic visions of the future. You know, warn people against the ills of technology. I'm not that kind of artist. I think I, I'm fairly optimistic, and I think the work is quite sanguine in that it's it's trying to. Uh, make space around these incredibly affecting technologies that change the way we understand each other and other animals. I'm trying to make space around these ideas with the works I make. Um, so my works are, are very nar- driven by narratives. Like you can read my works through just the, the, the posture of the creatures. Like it's all about body language. Like you don't, you don't really even have to look at it for very long and you get what it's about. And so this is a story. 
like like for example, the work at Goma, which is called Kindred, it's about an orangutan mother, and she's holding a child that's more human than she is. She's she's a chimera as well. She's orangutan and human. Her first child is a bit more human and her second child is completely human. And so we look at this work and we, th- we say, oh, okay, well, they're all different. And why are they together? And is this like evolution? Like, is this a kind of scale? Because this is how we understand evolution. You know, the more human you are, the more civilized you are, the more, you know, at the apex of this, what we understand to be a hierarchy of, of intellect, I suppose, of ability. So we look at this, this family and, and is, is the baby the, uh, being the human, is she the, the most evolved? And it's obvious that she's not. When we spend another moment with the work, she's not the most evolved. They are all evolved. What's amazing about this work is their connection and that there's this incredible nurturing figure at the centre of of this family, the mother, and she has incredible strength and fortitude of character and yet she's also quite vulnerable because she's got these two kids and she's sitting there and we can see her genitalia, which is not in a way that I would sit. You know, I just wouldn't be able to do that. But she can do it. She's beautiful. She's absolutely the epitome of a kind of uh, nurturing figure. And it's something that I aspire to be in in life with my family. So that so this is this is the woven story around this work. I feel that when I present this piece to the public, I make space around the idea of you know, when we interfere with nature, when we, and even when we, when we try and undo the damage we've done to the environment, like when we try and clone the thylacine, for example, what does it mean to us? You know, how do we relate to it? I, I'm, I'm, put, I'm putting another narrative in there and that leaves room for somebody else to bring their narrative in. And then we have culture because we have interactions of different stories So it really interests me that you're uh, sitting here and you're reading these science journals and you're drawing and you're thinking about these issues and then suddenly you cut to a very narrative-driven, emotional scene and I'm wondering, you know, something has to happen in between those two things and I'm curious as to what that is. Well, I'm not a scientist and I'm not even a writer. I'm an artist. So my... My forte is making a visual concept, a visual object or situation. And, 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 and part of that uh, entails a sense of spectacle as well. I th- thrive to, to have a sense of engagement w- with the viewer. Like I'd, I'd like the viewer to experience empathy so that they can connect to the idea. I guess... I could make incredibly esoteric and convoluted work about things that you know most people can't understand, like I don't know, literary theory or you know scientific phenomena. I suppose um, I guess I could do that, and I I have tried. No, I haven't tried it, but I've you know I grew up during the literary boom of the eighties and nineties, and I've lived through that, and I feel that. Uh, in my 50s, I don't really need to kind of look to these other narrative makers and ideas makers to say what I want to say about the world. 
I can just say what I'm thinking about. And and I think that's a lot more honest and and it allows people to get, you know, to respond more easily. In terms of cultivating that viewer engagement and having your work be uh, quite accessible in many ways, you do draw upon realism. Mm. And before you were saying you use realism as a means to an end, can you talk about what that end is and how you see realism as functioning in your practice? I think you're right. I think my work is quite accessible because it's got this sort of spectacle aspect to it. Like it's, you know, when you look at it, it's like, wow, you can see every pore, you know, every hair, you know, the eyes are so real. You know, it's got that sense to it. And and so most people can connect to that. But that's only the surface level of the work. There's always other levels. And the second level is often relates to a kind of ethical dilemma that I might be interested in. And the third level is often one that relates to the emotions. And not everyone gets to that level. But I think that for my work, sometimes I need to wrap up pretty difficult concepts in a kind of surface which people can connect to. Otherwise, they're just not going to get to the other levels. Like I use realism not because I'm interested in depicting the real world and how it is, I'm interested in depicting things that aren't real and talking to people about possibilities. So when you're creating these alternative worlds and these alternative bodies, why do you think we need that alternative space to reflect back on our own world and our own bodies? Well, I see my work kind of like myths. Uh, We can connect to them because... They're not really real. Uh, We can engage with them emotionally because um, they're not real. If if they were real, our emotions would be too strong. Like if if my artwork was to um, have a child that's half pig, half human, um, I'm sure that will happen one day, um, actually quite soon. But if that was my aim as an artist, I think that, it's just so overwhelming. I, the, the emotional content of that for most people would be so overwhelming that they just couldn't even consider it. Like it, you, you just wouldn't be able to control your emotions over that. It's just too strong. That, that stops thought. It's, it stops people talking about these things that are actually inevitable. We are creating chimeras that will happen very soon and – I think that we can't just leave it up to experts to decide what, what's best for us. And I think that as a community, artists can have a role in discussing these incredibly fraught sort of ethical dilemmas. And they are a real depiction of, of what's happening in our society today in a way that it, it, it wasn't happening a, a generation ago. That makes me think of something I'm really in awe of in your practice and I I just wonder how you do it, that you're juggling questions of human cloning, genetics and science and you're also talking about surrealism and the unconscious and taking these things that are quite hard to think about and you're putting these things into an intelligible form. Is that really hard to do? Because I mean, it looks seamless when you see these creatures in, in a gallery, but is it difficult for you to get to that point? Yeah, it is hard. <laughs> for me, it is. I struggle. 
Um, it is. I, I, and I've made mistakes. Yeah, all the time. I, I, I have a book of ideas, and I would say ninety-eight percent of them are really crap. Uh, and eventually, something surfaces, and I think, oh, this could work. And it, it, it's at that point that I have to be really confident and say. I'm going to go ahead with this and commit resources to it, not just my time, but the whole studio time. So this is something I really want to talk about with your work and how it's always talked about as as being caught between this tension of the natural and the artificial and the grotesque and the beautiful. And while I think these tensions are definitely true of your work – I do wonder, are they tensions you ever want to resolve and find some underlying logic or resolution to, or do you want to sustain these tensions to then uh, work within or work beyond them? That dynamic between the the attraction of the of the work and the repulsion of the work is totally intentional. Like I could make work that's super cute and adorable, um, but that would be just like cartoons or something and that that or uh, something flat like I guess commercial Hollywood I suppose um and I and I could make something that's incredibly uh disgusting and and abhorrent but I don't think that would work either because people would just dismiss it so I try and have that dynamic where you're attracted and intrigued because of something that's unfamiliar but interesting and also you're pushed away because you're hardwired to be suspicious of difference. I mean, we, that's how we evolved. And, and, and I think what happens is, again, it's about opening up spaces. There's a space that opens up this time in the viewer, the individual viewer, where you think, well, what do I feel here? Do I hate this or do I love it? And can I feel both things at the same time? Can I feel disgusted or can I feel compassion? And I think that's interesting because that doesn't happen very often in the world. We're told what to think. These guys are the bad guys. We've got to bomb them. You know, uh, this, this man over here, he's handsome. Let's, let's adore him. You know, let, you know, so it's, it's never, it doesn't have that, it's, it's always black or white. Where these works aren't black or white. I guess it's correct to say then that you don't see nature as this stagnant thing, that you're interested in the fact that bodies do change, especially as technology changes and develops. And uh, I think going back to what you said before, you don't really have any sense of purity or, or, or authenticity around nature at all. No, and I understand that the way we define nature is not working for us anymore as something that's pristine, not touched by man, um, something that's original. Um, that 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 nature's gone, and th- that idea is is paralyzing for us. We need to uh, find a new definition. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what it is. Um, but I and I and I think it's the new generations that will have to do it. But I want to be involved in the process of of coming towards a definition and making a space for that because, yeah, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. How do you think, and, and I know this is a big question, but how do you think art helps influence those changes? 
Before I made art, I studied economics. And during that time, I came to understand that the way neoclassical economics understands the world is a fairly constructed one. It's seen as a science, but it's not really a science. It's a kind of ideology. It's a lens through which you understand the world. And you know you can use this way of understanding the world to try and influence it. But it was just sort of, it was just very defined and very inflexible. And so I left that world because it was just too constricting. And, and that's what, that's this great strength of my art. You, you can do that. We can, you know, talk on many different levels and you don't have to be completely rational. And I don't think humans are generally very rational. We can connect in different ways. We can connect emotionally. We can talk about ideas on so many different levels that you can't do in other disciplines. Slightly changing topic, Peter McKay wrote in his essay for your show at GOMA, and I think Donna Haraway also uh, wrote something very similar, that your real medium is storytelling. And I thought that seemed quite true. Is that what you think? Yeah, I do. Because most of the sculptures have a narrative. They're, They're not about formal issues. I mean, they have lots of stuff in them to to do with how they're made, but I'm not really interested in talking about things like, um, say, the nature of colour. But I use colour in the work because I know certain colours have this kind of effect on people. So when you say narrative, uh, maybe just thinking of, of one of your works where there's a bed and there's a young girl on the bed and she's being approached by this creature that has these very long claws and they're both very interested and wondrous of each other and there's a peacock on the head of the bed so when you say narrative do you actually think like do you actually create a story for that scene do you imagine how they all got to that point so that's the welcome guest you're talking about that work is about us looking at the young girl the human um, connecting with this artificial creature and we can see that they're very enamoured of each other and that makes us feel a little bit uneasy because this creature is not, is not natural and, and that's new. And so that, that's a kind of a reflection of how we feel about technology. And there's no, I don't make a value judgment on that. That's just what happens. I mean, I feel anxious when my child is next to a, a dog I don't know, now, let alone... A, an artificial creature. Uh, so that that's one part of it. But the story for me in that work is that she is welcoming this artificial creature into her heart, really. Like, uh, she's so connected to it. And, and we ask, well, if she can do that, and in fact, if nature has selected for beauty, like the peacock in the work is this incredibly beautiful fluorescent bird which is so astoundingly beautiful if nature can select for beauty can we as the girl is doing also connect with beauty because this this creature is um, is just as implausible as as the peacock like how on earth could it have evolved how could the peacock have evolved but she has done it and the work is asking can we do it can we select for beauty when we change nature because that is not 
the reason that we generally change nature for. We change nature to make the world a better place, generally for humans. And the work is asking, can we do it for art's sake, for beauty's sake? And then if you extend that idea even further, you have to ask yourself, what is a good enough reason to change nature? I guess perhaps in answer to your own question then, do you think there is a good enough reason? Well, I'm an artist, so I love the idea of creating something that's beautiful. So for me, there is there is a good, that's enough of a reason. I mean, I'm interested, a lot of the show in Gomo is about celebrating life, the potential for life, any life, not even a particular life. And that's why there's so much stuff to do with fecundity and reproduction. You see so many um, fruiting bodies and flowers, which are the uh, reproductive organs of plants. You see eggs and, and you see children. There's a lot of that in the work. And, you know, I celebrate that. And actually part of the reason why I celebrate it is because my body's built for that. I'm built to reproduce. And I think that that's not very valued in our community, in our society, in this patriarchal society. I'd like, I, I'm trying to valorise it. And I think that's a valuable thing to do, to, to give value in itself to, to the idea that you know, women can make offspring and it's miraculous. Going back to that idea of being welcoming to these creatures who are so similar to us and then aren't similar at the same time, you always manage to evoke a huge amount of empathy. And I know that when I look at the works personally, I feel a huge amount of responsibility, but then I actually also feel quite afraid because as much as I see the potential for life and for those really amazing encounters, I also see the equal potential for violence and for for just really awful things to happen to these creatures. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I, I think that I do try and present their vulnerability as well. And so um, if, you, if you do create life, you have a responsibility to, to look after it. Yeah, we were talking about Shelley's book, Frankenstein, before. Um, I think that's the, one of the stories in, in that novel it's not just about the hubris of, of the doctor to think that he could create life, but it's actually, he was just a bad parent. Like, you know, he was a creep. He made this child and just because he looked ugly, he rejected it, even though his own mother adopted his sister who was abandoned by a family and um, his own father chose his mother because she had been left alone by because her father died. So he comes from this incredibly nurturing background. Everybody around him is loving and caring. And then he goes on to create a creature, an eight-foot-tall man, this incredible being, and he rejects him with not, with not much thought. And, <laughs> and then you think, well, is it any wonder that he came back and killed your your brother and the rest of your family. Is it any wonder you can't you made that monster? I feel that in the book, I, I empathise with the monster. What do you think about the end of that novel, where Frankenstein is dying and the monster is suddenly overwhelmed by his own grief? I think it further shows how complex these 
paternal relationships can be and how affecting they are and how they can drive people to do the most violent and destructive acts. I guess, personally speaking, art that manages to do that, that has that potential for life alongside that potential for destruction and that interest in the grotesque and the abject, to me, that's what your work does so well. And I find that extremely cathartic. And I was wondering if you find it cathartic too, and that's also perhaps what you're trying to evoke in someone who views your work. So you get cathartic. Uh, catharsis from? Uh, from things that are difficult, abject, grotesque. Um, confronting those things is really cathartic, I think. Yeah, I, I, I love the idea that it's a cathartic experience for you because um, for me also it's uh, meaningful. These ways of interacting with each other and then having an experience that gives us agency to go on and be in the world in whatever way that we've been affected, like to perhaps have compassion for others that aren't the same as us or haven't had the same experience as us. I think, yeah, they're valuable. And that was Patricia Piccinini discussing her practice and the thoughts and ideas that inform her work. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and remember to check in with Art Guide online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and previews from around Australia.